Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the fall of 2019, the unemployment rate in the U.S. was 3.5%, lower than it had been in 50 years. By the end of 2019, the Dow topped 28,000, meaning the stock market had more than quadrupled in a decade. The acceleration was unbelievable, and Danny Dorling didn't believe it. After 1968, the growth stopped abruptly and began to reduce dramatically. We're just about to go past only 1% growth a year in terms of human beings. Dorling is a professor of geography at Oxford University. Most of that growth now is ageing. It's people getting older and not dying. It isn't as having more babies. And the UN and many, many other bodies that look at demographic trends say that within the next century, maybe within just 70 or 60 years, we'll actually hit stability population on the planet will stop growing of human beings, then we'll have a a slight reduction. Dorling says that long before the shutdown that we're living through now, there was a slowdown underway, a slowdown in population, in technological advancement, and in the economy. The fact that it was taking place along those multiple axes made it particularly powerful. But the slowdown was in fact so slow it was hard to detect, and it may strangely be a pandemic that alerts us to a trend that's been afoot for decades. But if it was a trend that went unnoticed, this wouldn't be the first time. The phenomenon was what he called favourable seasons. And I think he, he was actually looking at elephants. The he in this story is one of the most famous scientists in the history of the world. And he was writing in 1859, just as a human population explosion was starting to change everything. Only he didn't see it. And he said there can be occasionally, very, very occasionally, a few favorable seasons where the food for a particular species is so abundant, where the predators that might normally kill them are are not there for some reason, that a species can have a population explosion and, and increase dramatically in numbers. A bit like an algae bloom. And the irony was that that Darwin was writing this about other species, just as this was actually happening to his own species. Charles Darwin was brilliant about a lot of things, but it was hard to imagine the favourable seasons that were to come. Human beings were, were about to go from just over a billion people to double and double and double again. We're almost eight billion. That increase has never happened Uh, before in the history of the species, never as as fast. And it can't happen again because there just isn't enough space on the planet to double, double and double again in the course of just a couple of hundred years. Dorling is the author of Slowdown, the end of the Great Acceleration and why it's good for the planet, the economy and our lives. And it's a book that starts with a quote, not from Shakespeare or Confucius, but from a 2018 news report on South Korea, marking the moment that their average birth rate dipped below one child. And I, I know I'm a, I'm a bit odd, um, but uh, it's, you know, this is the first country in the world where on average people were having less than one child, uh, which means that in theory, if there isn't immigration, your population is going to halve in a single generation. This, Dorling says, is going to become more and more the norm. And it's altering the economics of our lives. It's altering the rate of change, which, since about Darwin's time, has been much, much higher than it's been in recent decades. 
but we haven't thought yet about how we're going to deal with this new world. Indeed, it may only be now we're starting to realize it's here. Who is going to come in so that the population doesn't collapse? How are those people going to be greeted who come in? What will happen to those countries from which they come? And I'm assuming we'll get some migration so you won't see that collapse. And you could say, oh, fertility will rise again. But almost nowhere around the planet have women increased the number of children they're having anywhere, despite many attempts to kind of encourage them to in, in Russia and Turkey and so on. This really does look pretty well set in. The power of coronavirus to make almost the whole world shut down, to put a break on carbon emissions, to ground lots of planes and keep so many of our cars right where they are, it might force us to examine the Dorling argument more carefully. And his idea is this. The slowdown has been going on for years, despite the stock market rising, despite Apple coming out with new phones, because he says you can't beat the numbers. And the numbers tell him that in addition to fertility declining in country after country, we've also slowed down technologically, which might be hard to imagine at a moment when your kids are in Zoom school and you see most of your extended family members on FaceTime or on Skype. But all that amazingness, it doesn't convince Dorling. We're told this all the time as well, so we tend to to, to mimic what we're told and of course, it's interested in firms that are making new computers or new telephones to tell you that there's something amazing about their new telephone. I remember one which was released last year. You could bend it. It was slightly bendy. Now, I don't find that that exciting, but they were running out of, <laughs> of, of, of new things to do. Um, there have been attempts to measure the actual speed of innovation to get away from our bias to think that things are new. And, and they find that the 1930s were a period of greatest intervention because electricity was still being used for different things that we hadn't thought of. When it comes to the internet and this connection that we have now, uh, I was lucky. I was a university student in 1986 in one of the universities in England, which was the first to be connected to the internet up at Newcastle-upon-Tyne, near to a major railway line where the the fibre optic glass went along. Uh, So I had email in the 1980s. I had a video screening by the late 80s, early 90s. This isn't that incredibly uh, <laughs> new. Um, it, is, it is fortunate that Zoom works at this time. But, you know, the, the real shock was the telephone. The real shock was actually being able to communicate to somebody in that way, and that's a very long time ago. Not the fact that, although it's nice and it's lovely at the moment to be able to see people's faces, the actual move from being able to hear voice as we're doing to see a face is less and then the move to be able to see a higher resolution face gives you actually less in terms of new mm. information mm. holograms would be nice but again really not much else so that's what i mean by the speed reducing the kind of thing that hasn't happened is that we can't teleport you know there, there are lots of things that were promised in the 1960s and 70s that we would be able to do which obviously we can't do and, and that's kind of an example of technology not speeding up we cannot do things fundamentally differently to how we did them 10 or 20 years ago, whereas the difference for our parents and grandparents was much, much bigger in their lifetime. The tractor is only just over about 110 years old. Before then, Mm. we were all using horses. That's an enormous Mm. change. 
How do you measure that kind of thing? You know, how do you measure uh, technological innovation and, you know, the relative value of the cell phone and of electrifying a, a certain area? I mean, those are such they're so different necessarily. And people's lives were so different pre-cell phone and pre-electrification that how do yeah. you even how do you do that? It's the hardest thing of all to do. Making the case that we've had a slowdown in innovation is is the trickiest one. There are simple things you can do. You can measure the speed at which chips operate and you can see a slight bending in Moore's law going on. But much more important than that, you can actually say, what are we using this computer power for? And an enormous amount of it is being used for things which are uh, quite uh, trivial compared to what we used to use our, our computers for. Or we can say, look at the amount of data we're storing. It's going up and up, and then we can measure it. But an enormous amount of that data are pictures of ourselves. It's selfies, and there comes a limit. There are only so many pictures of yourself and your friends you can take. I um, don't know. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, some people Sometimes will do, will it do, seems will, will limitless. Do <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, it's a trend, but you, you can measure the amount of data, the increase in data. I've, I've looked at Wikipedia. Um, Wikipedia is a lovely example of something which in its first five years had exponential growth and then rapidly slowed down simply because there are only so many things that people actually want to know about on Wikipedia. There is a limit. Um, everything doesn't always accelerate all the time. So does that say to you, get ready for a world in which home builders don't have as much to do, people who sell computers don't have as many people to sell them to, right on down the line, clothes and food and whatever it is, just get ready because if we have fewer children, it's not going to take long before there's fewer people in the restaurants. <laughs> well, don't, don't assume that the business model ran very well for the last 200 years which is simply carry on doing what you're doing last year, for instance, selling Coca-Cola, and the market will grow. And as long as it's the same proportion of people buy Coca-Cola, you will sell more bottles of Coke. That doesn't work as the young population begins to decline. But equally importantly, as people begin to age, as we get more older people and people who are better educated, selling them computers that don't last for 10 or 15 years will become harder. There is absolutely no reason why a computer shouldn't last for 10 or 15 years. It can update itself other than the manufacturer building in obsolescence so they can make mm -hmm. more money. Mm -hmm. uh, but those kind, of, those kind of practices are harder to put past a, a more engaged population. We're currently going through a, you know, a rapid change and a rapid period with this pandemic, which is unusual. But it's going to teach people that your computer has to last longer because at the moment, if you want a new one, well, it isn't being made in China. And sort of similar with, you know, how many clothes do you really need if nobody can see you wearing them? It's helping to, <laughs> it's, it's, it's helping to speed up the rate at which people realise they have partly been fooled to buy far more things than they can possibly be used. So, so part of the reason slowdown is a shock isn't just that markets are declining, but markets are becoming cleverer. And although business might try and fool people, it might be better for business to kind of accept the slowdown is happening. You need to produce less, but of a higher quality, which will be used for longer. So even if there is a clear slowdown, your thesis, um, how do we know that that's necessarily going to result in less consumption? So I think about like the U.S., for example, we now have fewer than two children per woman. But if you look at our carbon dioxide emissions per person in the U.S., and you compare that with emissions per person in other countries, maybe even countries where the birth rate is a whole lot higher, we use so much more in terms of natural resources. Um, 
I, I just wonder if you can't have a situation where, yeah, you have fewer children, but you just consume a lot. Uh, absolutely, you can. And, and this has partly been what's been happening. The, uh, the average person in the US consumes and pollutes twice as much as the average person, say, in Japan. Which is incredible because Japan is a very highly advanced industrialized country. I, it's uh, amazing to me that we pollute so much more. Uh, it's 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 incredible, yeah. But Japan public transport is is far yes. more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, car use has been declining for twenty years in the cities. But even then, if everybody in the world behaved like the average person in Japan, we'd need two planets. If everybody in the world behaved like the average person in the USA, we'd need four. So this is okay. this is unsustainable. Um, until very recently, as in a few months ago, pollution, carbon pollution, was doubling every 23 or 24 years. It's one of, there are only five things in the book, four or five things in the book, which were still increasing exponentially. And our pollution uh, was one of them. It may well return to be one. It's just that we've had this quite incredible, utterly unpredicted, absolute collapse in production and and pollution, but not in the way you would want it. All the things in the book which were accelerating, which were pollution, temperature of the planet, the number of university graduates moving around internationally, and flights, all of those in the last two months have suddenly stopped, and they were the only things which were going up faster and faster. Well, you were saying even before the pandemic... There is going to be a slowdown. We should embrace it. We shouldn't be worried about it. In fact, this is actually a a positive thing. But if what we're talking about is true, which is, okay, maybe we're not progressing as far technologically as we might think. Maybe we're not having as many children as we used to. But, but carbon pollution is still increasing a ton or it, it, it was and presumably if someday we you know get a vaccine it will again maybe i mean if that was increasing if our ability to consume was still increasing what makes you think we actually are headed for a slowdown and that that's a good thing the carbon pollution is the one terrible thing out of all this and i i work in university so i don't mind the number of graduates increasing but the carbon pollution was linked to the temperature and to the flights and everything else that was accelerating and is is the one premier problem of our age. But I, I, I am optimistic. And it's, it's also because so much of the pollution was doing or buying things that were not making us happy. It was travel that you miss some of it, but you won't miss all the travel that you would have done if you'd been allowed to travel. Or the consumption of of goods that you don't use because you buy more things than you can possibly use, increasing the pollution. You know, it doesn't feel that bad when you suddenly do uh, reduce your consumption. If increased carbon pollution made us ecstatically happy, it would be a much trickier problem to begin to think about uh, reducing it. Danny Dorling is the author of Slow Down, The End of the Great Acceleration, and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy, and Our Lives. He's a professor of geography at Oxford University in the UK. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and talk about how pandemics have changed the acceleration of the world before and why this one actually might be in some ways more powerful. You can grab this whole conversation and every week's show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.
We hear a lot now about the flu pandemic of 1918, but its long-term economic effect may turn out to be exactly opposite from the moment we're living through. It was a very different world. No 24-hour news. Nobody really knew about it. It, it. it came quickly, suddenly, and there wasn't an awareness of what was going on elsewhere. That's Danny Dorling, a professor at Oxford University, who argues that in 1918, the world was speeding up at a tremendous rate. Population was exploding, technology was revolutionizing people's lives, and into all that came a virus that turned out to be much more deadly than the one we're combating now. I mean, this is the worst pandemic since modern records began in the 1830s. Worldwide, something between 17 million which is probably more true, and 50 million people died, but we think 17 million, which gives you an idea of how hard it is to actually count deaths in a pandemic. But the bounce back from that incredibly deadly year was swift. Global GDP in 1918 fell by 14%, uh, a huge fall. But the next year, it rose by 16, almost entirely corrected. Dorling is the author of Slowdown, the end of the Great Acceleration, and why it's good for the planet, the economy, and our lives. And he argues that after about 150 years of an economy on overdrive, fueled in large part by a ballooning population and by massive technological advances, things have cooled considerably. And that cooling has been happening under the radar for decades though it might just be the pandemic of 2020 that uncovers the reality of what we've been living through. Much as the pandemic of 1918, despite massive death tolls, could not stop the explosive growth in the world at that time. It isn't just the 1918, it's all the big ones since, which are 1951, 1957, 1968. Pandemics in general, while we were accelerating while GDP was rising, when the world population was getting bigger and bigger, tended to have very short-term and small effects. The, the difference now, maybe, with the rather small pandemics we've had, other than AIDS, which is one we forget is much bigger than what, what we're dealing with now, the difference now is that the world was slowing down when this one hit. We were already approaching a global economic recession that was widely predicted for 2020. We had trade wars. When a pandemic hits a slowing world, it can possibly have a bigger effect, even a relatively small pandemic like this one. You know, a million people died worldwide in 1968 and a much younger global population. This one so far is 200,000, may get to a million, may not, in a much, much older population. And, and bigger. We have a much bigger population than 1968 too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, much bigger. This, I mean, thankfully, and you've got to be very careful, and I know people are very frightened. Well, I can, I can tell you for the UK, we have records that, that come from 1832 onwards, and we can look at every year from 1832 and look at the 25 worst years, and this doesn't feature in those. The worst of those, of those years is the 1918 flu pandemic, Things like a, a very cold winter in 1929, cholera in 1846, I can go through them. So that's like the percentage, is it, that's like the percentage of the population that dies that year. Is that what it is? Yes. Okay. Yes. So only three of those 25 years have been since the Second World War. And the kind of percentage you're looking at, say for the 1968 flu, is about 6% or 5% of the, of the population dying. Um, now, this will almost certainly be smaller 
than that. But we were used to death back then. This is one way in which things have changed. We are not so much. We're absolutely petrified. And it's interesting, if you can step back away from the fear, to, to think about how did your parents and grandparents get through those pandemics of their lives I I talked to my father about this. I was actually alive in 1968, but I was a baby. And he told me there was a week where him and my mother could not get out of bed. And the problem was they had this baby and they they couldn't actually, you know. But they lived through it and then it became a vague memory. And that seems hard, hard to imagine now. But we're in a different world where we have tiny numbers of children because we expect our children to almost certainly survive. We are not used to death in the way that our parents or grandparents were, and things can be quite easily disrupted by events which, if they'd happened in the past, during the time of great acceleration, would have been brushed off and were brushed off far, far more quickly. You know, it's so interesting. You're the second person in just just the matter of, you know, just a few weeks to tell me uh, that they were young during a, a pandemic. Uh, I think 1957 and 1968 were the two big ones, right, since yeah, 1918. Yeah. And both people said, like, my parents didn't talk to me much about this. And, and as I got thinking about it, I realized my grandfather was a very young child during the 1918 pandemic. Yes. And I asked my mother about it. She said she never heard anybody talk about it, you know, her grandparents, her father. It's just such an interesting thing that I know people who lived through that and not once in the decades I knew them did they ever talk about it. And I don't know why that was. Because it it just happened. I mean, here in the UK, and we're the worst hit part of Europe, about one in 3,000 people died and affected by this. Now, most people will not know somebody. So all the news is from the news. It's not from personal experience. And even with something like the 1918 pandemic, which was 10 to 100 times worse, most people's personal experience, they were lucky. Somebody very close to them didn't die, did become ill, but didn't die. Uh, But also, deaths were much more common then. Uh, Again, just a few years before 1918, and again, sorry for quoting British statistics, but they're the ones I learned, the, the richest people in Britain, those that were called the servant-keeping classes, people who had servants, one in ten of their children died before age five. That was just normal mm-hmm. uh, around about 1911. Mm-hmm. Our world has changed dramatically. This is what I mean about the acceleration. But now that change is slowing down. So we don't expect our children to have that different a life from ours. And although our life is more different to our parents, their lives were much more different to their parents. Uh, And this is from everything from chance of dying to what they consume to what they throw away. So talk about ways in which you think this might be actually a positive if we slow down, which, as you say, was you believe was already the trajectory we were clearly on before this sort of epic slowdown that we're in right now. It's almost like a stoppage. But, yeah, just give me a sense of like what could be positive about things slowing yeah. down. Because <laughs> we tend to think of slowdown as, as negative because we became used, used to things going fast and accelerating. Um, of course, the biggest one of these is GDP growth. Um, it grew faster in the 50s and the 60s, faster in the 60s and the 70s, faster in the 70s and the 80s. What we tended to do is look at particular events like the oil shock or the unemployment uh, recession in the 80s and, and blame those. And we didn't step back and actually say the rate of growth of GDP has been slowing now for 70 
years. What's positive about it? The positive thing is we've got to a point which is a pretty good point as a human species. Our life expectancy in the world is is in the 70s and rising. This pandemic will almost certainly not alter that at all. Uh, 99.7% of people who die in the world this year will not die of this disease. So we are healthier than we've ever been. We have some of the lowest infant mortality rates that the world has ever seen and that almost are possible. Finland is the country with, with the best, but Japan does pretty well. We've reached a point where we need to share things out a bit better. You know, there are lots of problems and there are still countries which are far too poor, but they're getting richer. But uh, some of our problems are overconsumption. They're eating too food, buying too much, having too many cars, uh, not sitting back and relaxing. So given that slowdown is happening now, if we look at what we've got, it certainly is enough to be happy with. But also we can't afford not to slow down because of that pollution, because of the linear relationship between carbon and temperature. Uh, We really, really do not need the planet uh, to warm. Even small increases, another half a degree in temperature, have effects that we can predict which are very hard to deal with, which require large numbers of people moving from one place to another uh, where there is enough water and so on. And it it is just stupid to pollute uh, the world in which you live. I can go on about why I think slowdown is good, but I, I quite like the idea of my children living a life which is not dramatically different to mine where they won't go around the world many, many, many more times. or you know, Because I don't think that some of the ways in which we've accelerated our lives have necessarily uh, actually improved our lives. We've just done it because we can. It's not until you live in a house that's too big for you to live in that you know you live in a house that's too big for you to live in. And many people listening may well say, I want more. But you have to look at how much you've got and compare it to the past. The last example I'll give you, when I was growing up, we had a tin metal bin outside the house um, where every week we put all our rubbish in and it was collected by what we call dustbin men. I now live in a family about the same size as when I was growing up. We have three plastic bins that are twice as big in volume. We throw away six times as much as my family did when I was a child. And we are normal. This is the average consumption of things. And it just has to stop and, you know, at least stay the same, if not actually reduce in form. And I don't find it hard to see that, but I have been looking at this for quite some time. And I do recognise, because we're taught that speed is good, change is good, new inventions are good, which was one way of dealing with the acceleration when your life was changing utterly. If you imagine that you were born in 1910 and you get married in the 1940s and your old age in the 80s and 90s, you'll be so confused about what what has happened. And one way we dealt with that is to say, don't worry, it's good it changed. But I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that change for change's sake is actually that good. Danny Dorling is a professor of geography at Oxford University. He's the author of Slowdown, The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy, and Our Lives. Danny, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. On our 
website, we've got more about how COVID-19 will impact the slowdown that Dorling's been talking about, including an article he wrote looking at why the pandemic could be the wake-up call the world needs. That's at innovationhub.org.